only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Let's remain standing, if you would, for the completion of Luke 24. You can continue to follow along in the Pew Bible on page 885. Continuing on with verse 33. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate before them. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Amen. You may be seated. Let us go to God in prayer. O Lord, 
We've seen in this passage how you open the eyes of the disciples to see you. You opened their hearts so that they understood the Scripture. You opened their minds. You, Lord, opened the Scripture to them. Oh, Lord, it must always be that. It must always be you, through your Spirit, teaching us this Word, or else we will not see either. Bless us, precious Lord Jesus. Give us eyes to see. For your glory, for your honor. Amen. I know we've read a lot of Scripture, and that's good. And I would like for you to turn to one more portion found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is on page 961. 961. It's interesting to read that historical account of what actually happened in the days after Christ's resurrection. How the women saw the angel and he spoke to them and they reported to the disciples and then how Jesus appeared to the two disciples and they came and reported and then he appeared to all the disciples in that room. And now, listen to Paul's description of this resurrection. Uh, We won't read all of chapter 15, 58 verses, but just a few verses. Now, I would remind you, brothers... Of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Notice how much like Luke 24 that is. Everything's according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. In other words, a few have died, but most are still with us. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul on the road to Damascus, speaking of Jesus appearing to him on the road to Damascus. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. I want to talk, first of all, just about the fact of the resurrection, the historical event of the resurrection. A lot of times people think the proof is on our side. You've got to prove that the resurrection occurred. But there's also... For any of you who may be visiting, who are wondering about this whole idea of resurrection, there's the whole other side of the question, how do you account for the birth of the church outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Where did this idea of resurrection come from if he wasn't raised from the dead? Who thought it up? How could it become the central feature 
of Christianity, the driving force behind Christianity, if it didn't occur? Nobody's been able to answer that question ever. How could Christianity be born? Here in 1 Corinthians 15, just written some 20 years after the resurrection. Travel in Rome is easy, uh, the Roman Empire. If you wanted to check out this story, you could. But here are almost 500 people, Paul says, that are still around that can tell you we saw him raised from the dead. And that's the thing. There were two lines of evidence. One, the body was gone. You can be sure that a few days, a few weeks afterwards, when Peter preached that Jesus was raised from the dead and they gave testimony of having seen him, if the Jews could have reproduced the body, they would have brought it out and said, oh, yeah, this stinking corpse is resurrected. Give me a break. The body never found. And on top of that, here is this group of men giving testimony that they have seen him risen from the dead. Interesting piece of evidence is that still included in that Acts 24 passage is the testimony of the women. Now, if you're fabricating, fabricating a story about the resurrection in that culture, ladies, this is nothing against you. We're just talking about that culture Don't bring a woman's witness into it. Women were not allowed to give testimony. Their testimony was regarded as pointless. It mattered nothing. It was not allowed. And yet, here it is in the account itself. And if they wanted to present something safe and sound and not subject to criticism, they would have taken that out. But as many have pointed out, That's what happened, and it spread like wildfire. And there's no way you're going to go back and play like the women didn't give testimony. They were the first ones to hear the angel's story and the first ones to bear witness. And we tend to think that, unlike today, these were all uneducated, backward people that are gullible. They'll believe in anything. But nobody in that world had a category for resurrection. The Greeks, the pagans, to them it was impossible to happen. And on top of that, highly undesirable. Their idea of freedom was to get loose of the body. That was their hope one day, that you could die and your your spirit would finally be free free of this prison house. And to think that you're going to formulate a message that will be really effective among these pagans of the fact that he came, he was, his body was revived and resurrected and forever you're going to have a resurrected body. To the Greeks, that would be the worst message in the world. Absolute foolishness. Paul admitted that in this very letter. He said, this is foolishness to Greeks. And yet, it's the power of God that draws them uh, to God as God uses it in their lives. To go back into the prison house of the body and you're telling me this is good news? That couple with the crucifixion, the most heinous death, one that was not even allowed on a Roman citizen, so you're telling me your Lord, your Savior was crucified and then raised again? So to fabricate a story that you're thinking, you know, this could really work. (laughs) This could really gain some traction in the Roman Empire. No, anything, anything 
by crucifixion and resurrection. And for the Jews, the only resurrection that was going to occur was at the end of the world, when everything would be made new, when all pain and suffering would be removed. But for that, in the middle of history, they had no category for that. It was outside the realm of possibility. And along with the crucifixion, you have an offensive message to the Jews. So to think that they were sitting around thinking of something that would be effective and useful and could really win the Jew and really win the Greek, well, you could not imagine anything more ridiculous than a crucified, resurrected Savior. But that's what happened, you see. (laughs) That's what happened. And they had to report what happened and they realized that in it, was the glorious God of creation acting to rescue sinners from their sin and from death and bring them to a whole new life. They saw in the ridiculousness and the foolishness and the offensiveness of this thing outwardly that in that very thing bursts out the glory of God Himself. And so Paul says, we preach what is foolishness to the Greeks, and it's an offense to the Jews, a stumbling block, but it's the power of God for salvation because it's the truth. It's what God has really, really done. And of course, the idea of the disciples, you know, let's steal the body and tell them he's risen from the dead. They would know nobody would believe that. They wouldn't expect anybody to believe that. And imagine the disciples stealing the body from a Roman guard that, that the Matthew tells us was there. Uh, they had been waylaid emotionally, uh, like a 180-pound defensive back that was completely taken out, laid on the ground, and injured by a 250-pound fullback, right? They're taken out of the play. They're defeated. They're guilty that they've abandoned their own leader who is now dead. All their hopes are gone. And the disciples weren't exactly trained Navy SEALs ready to take on the Roman guard. It would constitute a revolt against the Roman emperor. Thousands of soldiers coming on the scene to take care of business. And unless you're ready for all-out war with Rome, which the Jews tried 40 years later, and 60,000 Roman troops waylaid Jerusalem, unless you're ready for war with the Romans, you don't go attacking them at a tomb. And how long would these disciples perpetrating a lie at the heart of their religion is a lie? How long would they have stood up to persecution and loss for what they knew was a lie? How do you account for the incredible uh, integrity and sacrifice that marked the early church? Pascal put it this way, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. And almost all the apostles and early leaders were put to death for their faith. Do you think that they were put to death for just a huge prank? Let's pull off something and everybody will believe it. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Tim Keller, and I'm going to read uh, some from this book this morning, and I hope that many of you will read it as well, The Reason for God. On page 208, he, he talks about 
other messianic movements in this same century. And he says, in not one single case do we hear the slightest mention. This is, he's quoting N.T. Wright here. In not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. Resurrection was not a private event. Jewish revolutionaries whose leader had been executed by the authorities and who managed to escape arrest themselves, they had two options, give up the revolution or find another leader. Claiming that the original leader was alive again was simply not an option. Unless, of course, he was. (laughs) Unless, of course, he was. And so you can see from these early leaders, uh, they did not easily grasp the idea of Jesus being raised from the dead. Uh, The word they used when they described the women talking was kind of a sarcastic word, you know, like they were going, you know, to the women who were reporting what the angel said, that Jesus is alive from the dead. (laughs) You know, women, you know, their testimony. And then... You might say, well, I just don't think a resurrection could happen. I just don't believe in things like that. You've got to bear in mind, neither did they. When they heard it, it was like, no, that's impossible. There's no way that can happen. They had to be convinced. Jesus appeared to them to convince them. And when he did appear, he startled them. He frightened them. They didn't say, there you are. We knew you'd come back. We knew you'd be raised from the dead because you told us. No, they were traumatized. And I love, as they're sitting there just mouths wide open, they can't believe. And he says, got any fish? (laughs) That's a great moment right there. Got any fish? Let Let me have a piece of fish. And you think, God, talk about the mundane in the middle of the glorious. But that was the glory, you see. That was the glory to show, hey, dude, this is a real body. It eats food and swallows it. This is a body. This is me. And that's when he says, touch me. It is me, myself. You see, underscore that little Greek word. It is really me. His body was new. It was not just wounded, staggering, the crucified one falling before them, you know, still still almost dead. He was completely new. He had a new body that just appeared in the room and would disappear. And it had powers. Paul talks about it later in 1 Corinthians 15 that our body now is weak, but it will be strong. It's humble, but it will be glorious. And he says in Philippians, when he comes again, he's going to make our bodies just like his body. He'll he'll transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. He entered a whole new kind of life in the resurrection. They hadn't planned for this. They couldn't conceive this. It just happened. It invaded them through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they couldn't deny the evidence in front of their eyes. And they became eyewitnesses to their death that the Lord Jesus had been raised from the dead. And the amazing thing is that the first century Christians then had, as Tim Keller calls it, a resurrection-centered view of reality. Where did that come from? It had never happened before. Never had anything like this happened before. 
They believed that he had this new kind of body, this new kind of life. They believed that one day they themselves would be resurrected in this way. They believed that the whole world would be transformed at that time, all because of the resurrection of Christ. And they believed that Jesus had passed from this age to uh, this age of a world of sin and loss and pain into a whole new world of freedom and fullness. That a whole new age had been opened up for people who would trust Him and that we could be delivered from this world. We could begin to taste the powers of a different world that He had entered into. And we could begin to live out a new spiritual life, a a kind of resurrected life that we just confessed in uh, in the Heidelberg Confession. And it will finally result in the resurrection of our bodies. The resurrection changed everything. It redefined everything. It created a whole new language. It created a whole new theology. It was the resurrection. And it burst into history. How do we explain that they suddenly believed in the resurrection? And it formed everything and poured out everything that they ever taught thereafter. And how could these Jews who believed emphatically and radically in one God suddenly begin worshiping Jesus Christ, this man that had been with them, how could they begin worshiping him as divine? How could Paul, dedicated to wipe out the Christians for the glory of Yahweh, suddenly be transformed and recognize that Yahweh had come in the person of Christ? And so, you may say, well, show me the evidence. And we would say to you, you've got to deal with this incredible thing that happened. This incredible thing that has resulted in such a movement that even now is spreading throughout the world. And so, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I would say, confronts each one of you, just like it confronted them. See, that, that appearance of Christ in the room with the disciples is, a, is something now that's proclaimed to us and says, now He presents Himself to you. What will you do with Him? He confronts you. He invades your life. How will you respond to this resurrection? And I'd like to say this, it's not only that it confronts you, which is true, but in, in a way it might be better to say this, the resurrection offers itself to you. The resurrection offers itself to you. It brings a train, a long train that you can't find the end of. You know how terrible that is when you're sitting at the uh, train stop and you can't see the end of the train. Well, this is different because everything in that train is for your benefit. Everything in that train is a boxcar packed with resources for your life here and forever. That's what the resurrection offers you. Now, I got an email this week, and this was not from any of you, so I'm not, you know, surreptitiously scolding you for this. Uh, One person out there, "Uh uh-oh, I was the one. Um, But I got this email uh, from someone outside the state, and it was meant to be uh, something sweet and warm and encouraging. And it was called, it it was an obituary, an imagined obituary uh, a few days after Christ was uh, crucified. 
And so the obituary uh, described him, his birth and his heritage, it described his miracles, it described the goodness of his life, uh, it described what an amazing person he was, and then it described his death. And after it described his death, it says this, and this, here's the ending point of the uh, email. In lieu of flowers, the family has requested that everyone try to live as Jesus did. Donations may be sent to anyone in need. That was the whole end of the life of Jesus, the wonderful man that lived and he died. And so here's the end result. In lieu of flowers, just live as Jesus did. Now, when I read that, I had the same reaction to that scene in my big fat Greek wedding. Okay? Most of you have maybe seen that. So the father in this uh, movie had come to it had come to his attention that this non-Greek fellow had been seeing his daughter on the sly. And that upset him greatly. So they're having a discussion in the living room as the women sit listening in the kitchen. I think one was drinking and, you know, it's because they knew it's about to break loose here in the living room. And so I can't exactly do his Greek accent, but you sneak around all over Chicago, but you never come here to ask me, can you date my daughter? I, I'm sorry, but, but to ask you if I can date your daughter, sir, she's 30 years old. I am the head of this house. Okay. Okay, may I please date your daughter? No! <laughs> All that, and he, didn't, he never intended for him to date his daughter. You see, that's what I want to say to this obituary. No, 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 no! Because Paul says here in chapter 15, if he's not resurrected from the dead, you are still in your sins. Notice here in in chapter 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, have perished. They're gone. Forget them. You'll never see them again. And they'll never see you again. There's no hope. It's only death if Christ isn't raised from the dead. And if in this life only we've hoped in Christ. In other words, if it's just this life and there's nothing beyond it, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's saying, if there's no resurrection, we believers are pathetic among all the people of the earth. We're the pathetic ones. Because we're banking on life everlasting through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, you see, as Jesus said to them, and, and he was repeating what he had said several times, what must happen with the Messiah? What must happen? They had in mind, the Messiah is going to vanquish our enemies. He's going to release us from the Romans. But he came to vanquish Jew and Gentile, their true enemy, sin and Satan and and wrath. He came to set us free from our sin. 
What difference would it make if they were set free politically and they were still self-serving Jews or self-serving Gentiles? That would do nothing. The crucifixion and the resurrection was there in such a radical fashion. You mean God took upon himself flesh and took upon himself the most horrible death imaginable, bearing the very wrath of God for sin and was raised from the dead. A radical, radical solution to a radical, radical problem. Our own sinfulness. And here is where one of my very, of this great, great book, one of the best chapters, I think, is the one in which he talks about sin and and what it is. He talks about uh, Kierkegaard saying that sin is seeking to become oneself or to get an identity apart from God. It's the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. Listen to that word. The despairing refusal to find your ultimate identity in God Himself. We were made not only, Kierkegaard says, not only to believe in God in some general way. And I imagine most of you here, many of you here, if I said, you believe in God? I'm not an atheist. I believe in God. And I go to church some and he has a place in my life. I I believe there's, I'm not like those liberals that would say there's no resurrection. Yes, sir, he was raised from the dead. You better believe it. But it's not only to believe in God some general way, but to love Him supremely, center their lives on Him above anything else, and build their very identities on Him. Anything other than this is sin. Have we sinned? Have we sinned? Sin is seeking to establish this sense of self by making something else more central to your significance, more central to your purpose, more central to your happiness than your relationship to God. It's Romans 1 that we refuse to thank Him and honor Him as, as God and we turn to the creation for the creation to satisfy us, for the creation to give us meaning, for the creation to give us significance. And it could be your own family. It could be your children, your husband, your wife, your work. It could be accomplishment. It could be exercising influence on other people. It could be anything. Ernest Becker, in his book, The Denial of Death, says this, that our need for worth, our need for a sense of value, is so powerful that whatever we base our identity and value on, we basically make it our God. We make it our God and we, we expect it to satisfy us as only God can. And you know what? As Lewis says, every single time it will break your heart. It will not only break your heart, it will break the hearts of those around you. Because fundamentally it is only an extension of yourself, an extension of your living for yourself. A self-glorification that refuses in a despairing way to find its significance and satisfaction and joy in God. But you'll find it in something else, 
anything else. In more traditional cultures, Keller says, the sense of worth and identity comes from fulfilling duties to family and giving service to society. In our contemporary individualistic culture, we tend to look at our achievements, our social status, our talents, or our love relationships. They're an infinite variety of identity bases. Some get their sense of self from gaining and wielding power, others from human approval, others from self-discipline and control. But everyone is building their identity on something. For instance, if you build your identity on parenting and your children don't turn out exactly right, then you lose your life. You lose your life. If you built it on another person, even in a marriage relationship, you build your whole life around that person and it fails, then you lose your life. There's no me left if you lose it. And if other people fail you and you're counting on people alone, that's your identity, then you'll be locked in bitterness. If it's through your own failings, you'll hate yourself. You'll despise yourself as a failure as long as you live. Kierkegaard says, only as your identity is in God and in His love through Christ can you have a self that can venture anything and face anything. That's the biblical message. If you have put your identity in Christ, then you can face any loss, any tragedy, anything. You can venture anything because nothing can wreck your relationship with God. Nothing. In fact, nothing can do anything except, as you believe, to draw you closer in your relationship with God. Isn't that amazing? Your identity is found in Him. Your chief love, your chief joy, your chief purpose in everything you do is Him. And there's nothing that can interfere with that. In God's grace, as He says, all things work together for good, that means every single thing, no matter how good or bad, just gets you closer and closer and closer in this relationship of love and dependence that you have upon God. You are set free at that point. Otherwise, you are enslaved by whatever you get your identity from. As St. Augustine says, our loves are not rightly ordered. That's our problem. Our love is not rightly ordered. What do we love supremely. If we love anything else except Him, it becomes basically our addiction. This is an interesting uh, comment that Keller gives from Cynthia Heimel, writing in The Village Voice. She thought back on all the people she knew in New York City before they became famous, movie stars, okay? One worked behind the makeup counter at Macy's. One worked selling tickets at movie theaters and so on. When they became successful, as she interviewed every one of those that she knew, every one of them became more angry, more manic, more unhappy and unstable than they had been when they were working hard to get to the top. Every one of them. Why, she writes... That giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to fill them with ha-ha happiness, had happened, and the next day they woke up and they were still them. We don't need a different circumstance. We need a different me. That's what we need. A different me. 
They were still them. The the disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. (laughs) Howling and insufferable. And this is what the crucifixion and resurrection does for us. It offers for us forgiveness. Absolute forgiveness. Immediate forgiveness. Not forgiveness if you'll do A through Z over a three-month period and really get good enough and God may then look at you and think, you know, I might just be your friend. No. It offers to you and me as we are, as sinful as we are, as bad as we've been or the things we've thought and said and done, and it offers us forgiveness, bam, right there. As you trust in Christ. Immediately as you trust in Christ, you are united to Him and joined with Him. And you are viewed by God as being joined to His own Son and associated forever with His perfect righteousness. You're made perfectly acceptable before the Father. And the resurrection, if it tells you anything, it tells you transformation, doesn't it? From death to life. It means the weakest, most terrible things in your life can be transformed by the grace of God. He raises us, and that's the literal language of Scripture spiritually, He raises us from death to life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A recentering of our lives, recentering of our relationships, then finally our bodies themselves will be transformed and the whole creation will be transformed. That's what is offered to us in the resurrection. But you see, you need to ask yourself, am am I one that denies the resurrection? Do I deny the truth and the reality of Christ raised from the dead? Let me just make a suggestion to you. If you are alienated, for instance, from His Word... If His Word does not play a role in your life, isn't it amazing in Luke 24 how at every point He opened the Scriptures, He brought the Scriptures to bear in their life. It is the Scriptures that convey to us the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. And when we trust in Christ, the resurrected Christ, we become His disciples. Not having a relationship to His Word is unthinkable for His disciples. He's the resurrected Lord that has brought us from death to life. We put our life in His hands. And one of the things that we do is we commit ourselves to follow Him, to learn about Him, to learn about His salvation. Whether through the worship of His people, through discussion, through your own personal study, to commit yourself to Christ is to be committed to His Word. And isn't it encouraging? He opened their minds to understand their scriptures. He opened their eyes to recognize Him. And later that same word is used in Acts 16 when Paul's preaching to a a pretty wealthy lady, Lydia, a businesswoman. And it says, the Lord opened her heart to hear what Paul was saying. So wonderful that as we commit ourselves and give ourselves to Jesus Christ that He will open the Scriptures to you. And I want to encourage you, they said, weren't our hearts burning within us when He opened the Scriptures? Hearts were burning within us. I would encourage every person here to seek the resurrected Christ and say, Oh Lord Jesus, raised from the dead, make my heart burn over Your Word. Make Your Word plant itself in my life and, and transform me. Lord, give me that living relationship with you, the risen one.
That comes only through humility. One last illustration, also from Keller. This fellow, Del Banco, writes of going to an AA meeting in New York City. And he said the first guy that stood up was uh, a crisply dressed young man who was talking about his problems. Now, this was his apparently first or second meeting at the AA meeting. And in his narrative, as he was telling them about himself, he was faultless. He's alcoholic, life had spun out of control, but all his mistakes were due to the problems of others, the betrayals of others, how he was going to avenge himself on all who had wronged him. Every gesture gave the impression of grievously wounded pride. He was trapped in his need to justify himself. And things are only going to get worse and worse, of course, until he recognized that he was just justifying himself. This is cool. While he was speaking, a black man in his 40s in dreadlocks and dark shades leaned over to Del Banco and said, I used to feel that way too before I achieved low self-esteem. <laughs> Till he achieved low self-esteem, he said. And he talks about each one of us is lost in himself. We're lost in ourselves. And he, he had this phrase that has just gripped my heart. Pride is the enemy of hope. Pride is the enemy of hope. Lost in yourself, not willing to admit the extent of the sickness, the disease, the death that you and I have, that pride is the enemy of the hope of putting yourself in the hands of the crucified, resurrected one. Are you living in your own pride? Or have you given your life to Jesus Christ, the resurrected one? Are you lost in yourself? Or are you lost in Christ? Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we come to honor you, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, and Lord, to honor you in all of our meals that we take together as your people, to honor you in all of our Bible studies and all of our fellowship and all of our just hanging out together. Lord, you are the center of everything that we do and the reason we do anything. You're the reason we go to work. You're the reason we work in our yards. You're the reason we clean our houses or have a meal. Lord, at the root of everything... As you have said, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess to you, Lord, that we, each one of us, in various ways, live as though you're not raised from the dead, as though you must not pervade our lives, and we don't want you to pervade our lives. We deny your resurrection in so many ways. And some of us, Lord, perhaps as the whole of our life, we've basically denied your resurrection because we've never taken you as the Lord of our life. We've never said, I'm going to make you the centerpiece of everything I do, and I'm going to make your word the centerpiece and your worship the centerpiece of my life, and from it will flow everything, Lord Jesus. We pray that if anyone here has been a denier of your resurrection as a whole way of life that even now he or she will put his life in your hands, will call you Lord, the resurrected one, and see that you want to rescue him, her, even as you've rescued each one of us, Lord. 
You're our only hope, but what a sure hope that we could be raised from death to new life, to a new life of love, living for the glory of Jesus Christ. Bless us to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?